The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and joining me in studio today were our political reporter, Sarah Barden, and the communications director of the Save the Eighth campaign, John McGurk, with only five weeks to go to the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. I asked John how his campaign was going. It's going pretty well. I mean, it's tough to try and get people engaged with the issue we find at this at this stage. There's a, There's an awful lot of people out there who... I think canvassers on both sides are finding this are genuinely undecided about how they're going to vote. They might be leaning one way or another, but they're genuinely undecided and haven't made a commitment yet. And trying to reach them is is, is the challenge. Um, one of the things we're finding is that an awful lot of people are unaware of exactly what's being proposed. Um, so they're un- they're aware that the, the amendment is being repealed, but they're not necessarily familiar with the detail of Simon Harris's proposed legislation um, and the extent to which 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 or just how far, I guess, this proposal goes. I mean, there's an awful lot of people out there who think that they're voting on um, legalising abortion in cases of rape or fatal fetal abnormality, as the as the vernacular term is. Um, and they don't know that this legalises abortion for healthy babies, um, to, of healthy mothers, for any reason at all, up to 12 weeks and, and beyond in some circumstances. So from our point of view, it's really been about trying to inform the electorate about what the proposal does, because your own opinion poll last September, Hugh, showed that when asked if they would support a UK-style abortion regime in Ireland, I think only 19% of the public did. Um, And a lot of people are not aware of exactly how liberal this proposal is. So that's really what our campaign is about, is trying to inform So uh, setting aside for a moment the proposal to repeal the Eighth Amendment, the constitutional proposal, Mm -hmm. the, the strength of your position in your view, is the is the legislation which is being proposed by Simon Harris? I think if you if you might if you want to put it in 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 a word, our message to the voters in the last couple of weeks is going to be this goes too far. I mean, the what the government is proposing is a more liberal regime than was introduced in the UK in 1967. Now, obviously, in 1967, the the act that was introduced in the UK was considered at the time to be relatively restrictive. It has not turned out that way. And our initial starting position in this legislation will be significantly more liberal than that act was in that that act didn't ever have an unprotected um, or sorry, protected period, as the government calls it, where you can have abortion happening for any reason um, up to three months of gestation. And it's very similar in the aftermath of the, the three month period in under under head four of the act proposed by Simon Harris, where it allows terminations on grounds that are almost identical to ground C in the UK, which is the ground under which 98 percent of all terminations take place in the United Kingdom. Sarah, I want to bring you in because you're you have the onerous task of being a fact checker extraordinaire for the Irish Times over over the next few weeks in this as the cam- as the campaign goes on and those kind of points which, which John raises there first the the comparison with the United Kingdom and the fact that let's take first the the twelve weeks proposal that that's considerably more liberal than the current regime in the United Kingdom and that polls show that uh, the people that, that that the Irish people as much as we can measure it don't want that. Well, just in terms of the comparison to the United Kingdom, obviously in the UK, they allow for terminations up to 22 weeks without restriction. Uh, the restriction there is that um, 
two doctors will have to uh, allow for termination to take place. They also allow for uh, abortions post-22 weeks in a series of circumstances. What the government here is proposing is that there would be terminations up to 12 weeks without restriction and post the 12 weeks only in the cases of when a mother's life or health is at risk or in the cases of fatal fetal abnormalities. And what they've done is, in the legislation that John has referred to, is rule out late-term abortions. So at the point of viability, uh, which is about 24 weeks, it will not, if a woman, let's say, um, alleges that she her mental health is at risk and is seeking a termination post-24 weeks, um, it would be about delivery of the baby rather then uh, termination. So there are a number of stark comparisons between what the government here is proposing and um, what is in place but, in the but United the, Kingdom. But, but what is proposed up to 12 weeks is at least as liberal, for want of a better word, I'm not completely satisfactory, but at least as liberal, if not more liberal, than what's available in the UK, albeit up to a later stage. Uh, no, I mean, what is essentially being asked uh, or essentially being proposed by the government here is that there would be, first of all, a woman would have to seek a termination from a medical practitioner. Um, That medical practitioner would then have a a legal obligation to consult with the um, woman, offer her uh, various options. And at that point, then a three-day waiting period would be enforced, um, after which, if the woman is still seeking a termination, a pill would be provided. So in the United Kingdom, a woman seeks a termination, two doctors agree that termination should take place and a termination takes place. If I could be so bold, and I, I don't mean because I, I don't mean to fact check the fact checkers here, but if you look at the UK, Sarah said that they have abortion without restriction up to 22 weeks. And in practical terms, she's correct. They do have abortion without restriction up to 22 weeks in the UK. But that's not what the UK law says. What the law says is that if you want to have an abortion at four weeks in the UK, you need the sign-off and the permission of two doctors who must certify that there is a risk to the physical or mental health of the woman. Now, of of the 97% of abortions that take place in the UK under that grounds, only 0.2 relate to the physical health of the, of the woman. 99.8% of those relate to the mental health. Now, what the legislation actually says in the UK and what the impact of the legislation are is very relevant because the legislation says physical or mental health of the woman. And what we're saying very clearly is that after 12 weeks here, the government's legislation refers to physical or mental health of the woman with two doctors to sign off that there's a real threat. When that was introduced, Sarah, in 1967 in the UK, it was believed by many, including Margaret Thatcher, for example, who voted for it, that it would be restrictive. It has turned out to be, as you rightly say, abortion for any reason at all. So what we have in Ireland is a different regime, which is abortion where where you don't need a reason you don't need to state a reason. You don't need to have your health, physical or mental health, threatened up to three months. But then after that, for an initial three months, the language is, it's not word for word, but it is it is almost word for word in terms of its comparison to the UK, the UK regime, where it is physical or mental health of the woman with the consent of two doctors up to viability, which is 24 but weeks. But that's effectively abortion on request is what it, is, what it what, is meant what, since 1967. What I'm in saying, UK, in, the UK, in, saying. The, in the UK, when they introduced that wording, it turned out to be effectively abortion on request. And we're being told it's restrictive here. But it's, it, is, it is almost identical wording to the wording in the UK, which has turned out to be, as Sarah said, abortion on Sarah, request. is that true that it's almost identical wording? Um, I don't know the exact wording of the UK legislation, but what I would say is that 92% of uh, abortions in the United Kingdom happen under 13 
weeks of pregnancy. 81% of them happen under 10 weeks of pregnancy. I mean, the same allegation that is being made now with regards to a sort of opening of the floodgates was was the same allegation that was made when the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act was enacted in 2014 and 26 terminations every year have taken place uh, since that piece of legislation was enacted and only seven across the three years that have been that the legislation has been in place have been on the basis of suicide. Um, so, I mean, claims are, are made... Uh, um, by members of the pro-life campaign that this will inevitably lead to abortion on demand up to six week or six months, excuse me, of pregnancy, and that isn't borne out by the facts. If I can just make a point, Sarah says rightly that ninety-two percent of abortions in the UK are earlier than than than, than twelve weeks. What she doesn't do is put that statistic into context, where you have one hundred and ninety-four thousand abortions every year, and eight percent of one hundred and ninety-four thousand, off the top of my head, is somewhere around. 17,000 abortions every year that take place at some stage between 12 weeks and 20, 22 weeks in the UK, which is much later. And that's an awful lot. When you put it as a percentage term, it's quite small, but that is an awful lot of unborn children being having their lives ended quite late in pregnancy. Um, and as a percentage figure, here it would be it would be in the hundreds of abortions every year, uh, according to our current rate. And that is assuming that Ireland is the first country in history not to legalise abortion and see the abortion rate go up, um, which we would be if that were to happen. John, can I can I ask you about something? I'll move it on a little bit. Um, we we had Alva Smith in in last week, and we were putting some questions to her about the the inevitable tensions I think that arise in any campaign of this sort between the need to kind of energise the base and fundraise and kind of speak to ones you know ones activists really and and in, in the language. Which they want, but also to do what any campaign is about, which is to win the argument and to win a, a majority of the vote. Um, the arguments which you're making here are uh, designed uh, uh, to appeal to people who may well feel, for example, that in certain circumstances, such as uh, a rape, incest, um, particularly unfortunate medical circumstances around uh, around the fetus, that the Eighth Amendment is uh, is unfair, inhumane. Uh, uh, breaches the human rights of of women in Ireland. Um, that's not a view which is probably held by you or by other activists in in your organisation, is it? I, I take a very practical view of this. I personally am pro life. My view is that you know, the, and I, I, I I'll, I'll be gentle in my language as, as as much as I can be. My view is that you know, abortion is only successful, and abortion procedure is only successful if it ends the life of an otherwise living being. And I that is per, something for deeply personal reasons, I oppose. However, I recognise, and I think a lot of people in our campaign recognise, that on both sides of this debate, if you are campaigning in this referendum on either side, by and large, you you, you, you are not in the mainstream of Irish society. Most people are not. Um, and I think it is fair to say that if this government had introduced a proposal that legalised abortion in, in, in what we might term the exceptional circumstances or the difficult circumstances, um, any no campaign would have a much more difficult time than we might have at the moment. And I think I think people would be much more comfortable voting for that, even though I personally would not. I think most Would you people, have campaigned against it? I think I probably would have. I think I probably would have. Um I, I in my view, the the right to life of a human being is worth defending. Um and even if you're going to lose that argument, sometimes it's an argument that's worth having. Um however in this case, where I think most people are is they, they may feel they may feel in, in those circumstances there is grounds for liberalisation of the law, but I don't think most people want to see a liberal abortion regime in Ireland. And I think it is very clear that there is going to be one. I mean, 
you asked me that question, and it's a fair question. But, I mean, bear in mind the people campaigning on the other side, if you asked Alva Smith, for example, I don't know whether you did, um, if there are any circumstances in which Alva thinks that an abortion should be illegal at any stage of pregnancy, she would not say, she would not give you an answer saying it should be illegal in this circumstance. And that goes for a large number of legislators um, and those people are going to be given absolute power to to define the abortion law in years to come. I mean, we were criticised recently for putting up a video of Leo Varadkar pointing out something he'd said about, about medical, um, about how the dangers of, of, of abortions for women and not including what he said next. And what he said next was, in 20 years' time, the abortion laws will be different. And we'd say that's that's true. If you're, if you're voting for this, even if you do believe it's restrictive, I don't think it is, um, Everywhere abortion laws have been introduced over time, they become more liberal. And by taking away all constitutional rights for the unborn child, you're essentially, you're giving your constitutional consent not only for this regime, but for every abortion law that may come, be put into place after it as a result of this referendum. And I don't think that's something that an awful lot of people, um, I, I don't think a majority, are comfortable with. There are other things that have happened as well, though. For example, in some, in some countries which have liberal legislation in this area, abortions have declined quite considerably over the last 20 years or so, whether that's because of social changes, uh, better education, greater access to contraception. Um, we had Pater Tobin from Sinn Féin, who obviously is one of the more prominent um, anti, uh, anti-repeal politicians in. And it seemed to me, uh, and I hope I'm not doing a, him a disservice here, but his core argument against the repeal of the Eighth was that um, is that repealing the Eighth Amendment would lead to an increase in the number of abortions which Irish women had. Uh, are there not other ways to reduce that it, by making women's, li- women's and mothers' lives better? It, it, well, there are two separate arguments. Firstly, I mean, I think everybody, I would hope that everyone on both sides of this debate uh, would recognise that it is good when the overall number of abortions decline. I would hope that's a common position because I don't think even people campaigning on the other side think that abortion by itself is a desirable outcome. In fairness to them, I don't think that's a position that they hold. What I'd say in relation to your question about the abortion rate declining is that it needs to be put in context of where the birth rate has also been declining right across um, Western, what you might term Western civilization. The birth rate has been declining. My understanding is that the abortion rate as a proportion of the birth rate hasn't particularly shifted. Um, so you have fewer overall births and fewer overall abortions um, in some countries. Um, and our view is that is that regardless of the overall statistics, I mean, you know, a, a famous leader of the Soviet Union said that, you know, one death is a, is, is a tragedy and a millionaire statistic. Um, on an individual level, you know, each abortion takes a human life. And we would like to see that number reduced as much as possible. And we, the, the, the experience everywhere that you introduce legal abortion is that it, it shifts the culture of a country significantly. We've used a statistic and we've been criticised for it in this campaign about Down syndrome in the UK, where we've said that nine out of every 10 children diagnosed in utero with Down syndrome in the UK um, are aborted. And the re- you know one thing I'd like to say about that is that we are not arguing for one moment that the mothers of those children are bad people. What we do think happens in the UK and in other countries, Germany, for example, which is a similar statistic, I think I, you can't find any country with legal abortion where the statistic isn't roughly 90% in that particular condition, is that you, you, you end up with a cultural shift where it becomes the expected solution in certain cases. So, for example, some people on our campaign um, who have suffered a child with a with with an illness who isn't going to survive what they would term a life limiting condition what other people call a fatal fetal abnormality would say that they have felt in with this debate a, a degree of pressure that it's wrong to bring a child into the world in certain circumstances and that when you legalize abortion it results in a cultural shift the same was very much said i recall at the time of the divorce referendum 
was that there was a cultural argument. There's essentially the equivalent of the cultural argument that you're making there. It hasn't quite worked out that way. Obviously, divorce rates increased because there was no divorce previously. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's changed the culture in that profound way. There's still an identifiably Irish culture in the way we, we deal do with these have, We do have a genuinely more restrictive divorce law than they have in the UK, and we're, we're trying to liberalise that. I actually, by the way, support the liberalisation of that law. Um, I don't think anyone should be, be asked to stay in a marriage in which they're not happy. Um, but I, I, I do think there has been you know, inarguably, because as you say, there was none before, an increase in divorce. And I'm not familiar with the statistics, but I believe that has been increasing year on year. And by the way, while I think a divorce should be freely legal and available, we've had hardly any discussion about the negative societal consequences of that and the increase the increase in family breakdown. And that's not necessarily a consequence of divorce, liberal, of divorce being liberalised, but there has been... A, a change in the culture. Now, one can argue that change has been for the better in many respects, but there has been a change in the culture since we since we introduced it. Um, I don't think divorce is an, is an important issue in this context. I do think that everywhere you legalize abortion, there is a change in the in the culture around childbirth and the change in the culture around treatment. I mean, it's difficult, obviously, to measure something like culture. But it, 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 it is. But what I'd say is that it, it, from our point of view. In Ireland, you know, we're not in denial. Irish women are having terminations. Irish women are going to the UK to have abortions. In many cases, for them, it's a last resort of a desperate situation. Our fear is that when you legalise it, abortion, instead of being the last resort, becomes, in some cases, the first recommended option. And that is and that is a concern that I think a lot of people have. I suppose just if I can um, respond to some of the, some of the things that, that, that John said, I mean, I think he's right in one sense, and that is that I suppose when the when this whole process began, when the Citizens' Assembly was established, more so when the Eroctus uh, Committee was established, many people believed that it would a proposition would be put to the people that it would be for abortions in, in exceptional circumstances, rape, incest and the cases of fatal fetal abnormalities. But what the committee heard was that legislating for the cases of uh, for terminations in the cases of rape was exceptionally difficult and almost impossible to do. Now, I know John has raised the case of uh, Spain uh, previously, and there is a situation in Spain where a, um, they do allow for abortions in the cases of rape. What is required is for a police report to be made, and um, on that basis, a termination is provided. If that was translated to Ireland, it would be the equivalent of a woman making a report to a member of Vanguardia Chiacona, and on that basis, a termination would be provided. There is the difficulty there, which is something the Rochester Committee heard, in that a lot of women, especially in cases of marital rape, do not want to make a report to the guards regarding their particular circumstances. And also something that was raised by Tom O'Malley, who's a law lecturer in NUI Galway at the committee, said that we have a constitutional right to a fair trial and if you were to provide a termination on the basis of rape, then the person who was accused could deem that they're not being given a fair trial. So there were a number of complications. They have a different legal system, an inquisitorial there. rather than an adversarial system as well, which I think would probably have some impact on that. And that's essentially why... Um, the position of 12 weeks was uh, was reached. He also mentioned the issue of Down syndrome and um, he changed his, he changed the, the phrase that you used because the poster says nine out of 10 babies with Down syndrome are aborted. Um, that's right, isn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, whereas you said nine out of 10 out of prenatal diagnosis. Yes. Okay. So do you see where there's a discrepancy there? I would have thought that the Irish public would, 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 
instinctively understand that if you're not diagnosed in utero with Down syndrome, you're unlikely to be aborted as a result of having so Down why, syndrome. So why not say that in the poster? Uh, because the idea of posters is to communicate a simple a simple message in as few words as possible. Ideally, if we could up a billboard that put up a, a you know put an op-ed on a billboard explaining to everyone in detail why they should vote no, we would do it. But unfortunately, you're limited in space. Um, I do accept. There is there is a we'll distinction. One more word. I, I do accept that there is a distinction to be made there between you know, and, and to be very clear, what we're saying is that that if you are diagnosed with Down syndrome in utero, nine out of every ten times, there is a, a termination, and a lot of those terminations are recommended or encouraged um, by you know in, in, in you know from studies in other countries, it becomes the medically expected thing to do in those circumstances, and we think that is concerning. I'm happy to take the point that yeah, we could have put another word on the billboard. It was just when we were we we, we honestly thought this was something people would. Want understand instinctively so we're happy to we're happy to clarify that I think the, the the thing is though that is worth pointing out is that I checked the figures um, again last night and just 2% of all terminations in the United Kingdom uh, which is 3,208 terminations are on the basis of what they term as category E which is mm-hmm. when a fetal abnormality is identified and the figures that the pro-life um, campaign have relied upon are figures from 2010 it's uh, from a British parliamentary inquiry report. You have to ask the pro-life campaign because I'm going to save the it's their statistics. But our statistics are definitely from the most recent British parliamentary report into this, whatever date that was. Which is that was. 2012. Okay. Um, so it's just, I think, you know, that there is uh, obviously an obligation on everyone here to be, and on both sides of the campaign, to be open and transparent. And I think, sure. and I, I think we can accept as well, we can accept Joan's point that sometimes people will simplify in the interest of trying to get a message across. And they just need, we, we, you know, our, our job as journalists is to pull them up on, on, on all sides. When, if if when I can clarify something, I mean, obviously the, the overall number of, of, of terminations in relation to Down syndrome is, is relatively small. And in the UK, there is a specific ground, ground E, under which those terminations are, are, are made. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, that's not going to be legalized in Ireland. But we would ask journalists to look at Germany, for example, which has no terminations on the basis of disability are actually illegal in Germany. You can't do it. Um, but that's not true. The, the, in Germany, they do allow for terminations when a fetus is seriously ill or disabled. In fact, it was something that was raised with Angela Merkel during uh, her recent re-election campaign. They do allow for terminations. Culturally, but it's not in the law there. I mean, it, it's it's something that that politicians accept, that society accepts, but it's not in the law. It evolved over time. And the, the law, when introduced, did not say that. And in fact, nearly all those terminations that take place take place on the basis of um, that such a, that such a disability is debilitating to the mother. And, you know, that's a position that's evolved. And there, there are numerous examples of this around the world. There's Denmark, most of the Scandinavian countries and so on. So I don't want to make this discussion all about disability. Um, uh, or about Down syndrome, because that's not fair to people involved. But it, w- the reason we're, we're making that argument, essentially, is to show the cultural impact and how the how when you legalise abortion, cultures in, the culture shifts and what becomes culturally expected can Okay, shift. fair enough. And, and, and you've made that argument. I want to move on because we, we wanted to focus primarily, if possible, on, on the campaigns and mm-hmm. the, way, the way that they're being conducted. What do you feel about these posters, which we've had outside the Irish Times here and people have seen around the, the country of dismembered fetuses in, in, in lurid colour being essentially pushed into people's faces. What's your view of that? I know, I know, that, I I know that you don't support them. I think they are utterly appalling. I think they are utterly appalling. And I want to say this. I mean, my view, and I, I stress this is my view, is that if you are somebody who is pro-life, um, and you are somebody who believes that an unborn child loses their life in a termination, then I think the least one can do is to show some respect for that unborn life. And I think that when you 
when you when you put those pictures up and you do it in the way that this particular group has been doing, um, you show no respect for the very uh, people whose rights you claim to be defending. I think it's appalling, and I think they should stop doing it. Um, you, do you know, know I, do, you I, know, do you know these people? Do they are not Irish. Um, they they have no connection with the Irish debate. They have come in from from outside, from the UK and the USA. Um, they are not helping the cause. They 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 they. they, they think they're helping. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is not a single person in any of the major campaigns who wouldn't wish that they would stop doing what they're doing and go back to their own country. You know, I want to make the point about respect for life because it's so important. You know, we have had, the, the, you talk about graphic images, you know, how many times over the last 10 years have there been horrible incidences in the Middle East where, where people from the UK or, or Ireland or the US have, have, have suffered horrifying deaths and the people that's responsible for those deaths about those videos online. You would never show those in the Irish Times. You would never depict them um, for, out of respect for the the person who's lost their life. And I think at a minimum we can, we should we should demand the same in this debate. In our posters for clarity. Um, we do uh, on one of our posters show an unborn child at twelve weeks, but that child is alive. The child is alive and well. Um, we're running an ad online, for example, that shows an ultrasound of a living. 12-week-old child because we think, you know, when you're debating whether somebody has a right to life, it's important to to show that 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 entity that we're actually discussing because at the end of the day, it's a 12-week-old unborn child who's going to have their constitutional rights removed. That is substantially different, I think, than showing somebody um, after their their life has been taken away from them. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't think it's helpful. And I think nearly everybody who's a mainstream pro-life person in this country wishes those people would stop. Right. Well, that's very clear. Let me ask you about another subject. You had a, you know, a robust letter in the Irish Times a few weeks ago in response mm-hmm. to a column which uh, Fintan O'Toole wrote, which was in relation to a company called Canto, yeah. I think, who were providing some digital services to you. Canto also provided services to the Leave campaign mm-hmm. uh, in Brexit. And Fintan uh, found this worrying. I think it's. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and you uh, poo-pooed his worry. Uh, I, like, I, don't, I, don't, I, I doubt if you set his mind at rest. I, but I, just you, for uh, the record, in case he thinks he thinks he wrote, he wrote a column the, sub, uh, the, the next week about um, about about men and and consent and all that kind of stuff, which I thought was one of the finest pieces of journalism published by anyone this year. So I'm not opposed to him well, per well, se. there you go. But uh, there is but there, there, there the, is, as we all know, there is a concern at the moment around uh, digital messaging, where it comes from, the purposes to which it's put and the difficulties I, of tracking it. Think, and this this organisation, some of those concerns do focus on I, I think it's a legitimate the concern. I, I think it's a legitimate concern that has been massively overblown in this referendum. I'd say two things about it. First of all, um, I think it is I think it is vitally important that organisations campaigning in a referendum um, or a general election or whatever it may be um, have the courage of their convictions to put their names to everything they, they, they publish. You were able to challenge me a couple of minutes ago about our Down Syndrome billboard, as you should have been. And I think it's very important that if we put out any ad that you guys are able to call me up. Sarah, you, you, you emailed me yesterday about another one of our posters. Um, and and challenge us and put that put that question to us uh, that, that journalists are there to act as as referees. I think that's very very important, and that's why we're committed. If we run that online to putting our logo, or our brand, or promoting it from our own page, and I think what Facebook is doing in terms of in terms of making it more easy for people to see who is advertising is very good. But I don't think it goes far enough. But that's a general issue. I also think, by the way, that some of this conversation infantilizes voters. I really do. I think there's there's a concern in the political class that voters are going to see a, an ad that is going to turn their feeble minds against repeal. 
um, and that there are shady actors out there manipulating the poor, helpless voters. I happen to think that the average person is able to look at a piece of information and decide whether that relates to them emotionally, whether it's how they feel, whether it's fact-based, um, they can check it out. There's also a robust debate. The idea that we would somehow win the referendum on Facebook is a bit of a myth if you look at how strong the repeal campaign is on Facebook. What we have been, what we've used Canto to do, essentially, is to figure out internally if we're doing things right or if we're doing things wrong. If we put out an ad and, you know, 400 people put angry faces on it and they're all of a particular demographic. So you do then sentiment we want to, analysis, A-B yeah, testing, yeah, that yeah, kind of that, stuff that, for people that, who work in digital That kind of thing. And I, what, I, what I also said in the letter that I wrote in response to Finton is that, you know, there the, are the practical reasons why the kind of micro-targeting that he was worried about wouldn't work in Ireland, A, and B is unnecessary. If you look at an American presidential campaign, if you look at, let's talk about the Trump-Clinton campaign because this is where most of this came from. You know, and Donald Trump uh, is running a, a campaign and he has an X amount of money to spend, but he has 300 million voters to reach across 50 states and he wants to get an advantage in the Electoral College. He therefore wants to target a specific group of voters in Wisconsin. There might be 3 million of them um, and micro-targeting helps. In Ireland, we have such a small population, relatively speaking, and, you know, a, a smaller population, again, that's actually online, that the the financial imperative to micro-target simply, simply isn't there. It's not worth it. But it does then raise the question of why you would get this very specialised company, which is essentially one is very specialised individual, as I understand it, who, who worked in the Leave campaign, which there are a whole ball of really, you know, serious questions about the way in which they conducted some well, of those issues in a larger country. Could you not just have got somebody local? Well, generally you want somebody who's won something. Um, and and they, they, they had won their most recent campaign, which is a fairly strong resume. Um, the, you know, secondly, uh, and this is actually relevant, it's, it's, it's very difficult, we find, in this campaign um, for Irish businesses to be seen actively to be taking a part in the referendum. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a there was a furore around. I think it was Butler's chocolates because one of the one of the gentlemen owning it was was listed on a, a list of Catholic businessmen, and there was a boycott of them because not because he donated to our campaign, he hasn't, but because because there was a possible chance because he was a Catholic, he might have done. Um, so, frankly, uh, it, it's it's much easier in some circumstances just to take people in from outside who are a little bit immune to the kind of pressures that do get exerted by the other side on people who are working for you. And by the way, I, I, just so we're clear, I'm not making accusations. It happens to both sides. There was a disgraceful incident yesterday where um, where a, a repeal meeting in Dundalk was cancelled because some people protested and that shouldn't happen either. But one of the things about going outside is that people are immune to the kind of pressures that get exerted on vendors providing stuff to campaigns and also because they won. And uh, they are effective and they're good at what they do and they've built us a good website and we're happy with the service. Sir, what's your read on, on, on this element? of it and also the related element of how well the campaigns are financed and where the money's coming from. I think it'd be foolish of either side of the campaign not to use social media uh, to their benefit. Uh, social, from I think the statistics that are definitely made available publicly is that most people access their news through Facebook. So it would actually be foolish of uh, John or anyone sure. on the uh, Together for Yes side not to use Facebook to their benefit. Um, I, you know, I think bringing in Canto from the United Kingdom was always going to cause a significant amount of controversy. But I think in one way, that's essentially what the Save the Eighth campaign wanted, you know, to do, to get a bit of publicity towards uh, its campaign. With regards, I suppose, to financing, you know, one of the things that I hope John might be able to tell us is, I suppose, 
you know, how much money you have raised. You've said 400,000. I'm none the wiser as to how you've raised the 400,000. When I think you were asked at the campaign launch, you said that you raised a significant amount of it at the at the rally. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on News Talk last week, then you said that you've, ra- you've raised it since January. So just if you can give us an idea oh, yeah. as to where, where it's coming we from. Are, we are, first of all, in terms of where we're at, we're well beyond 400,000, um, approaching 500,000. Um, our donors, I mean, this is, they're very simple practical reasons here for, for that, if I can take you through it. Our donors tend to be older. They tend to be people who've given to pro-life causes for years and years and years. Um, and the most effective way for us to reach them has always been by writing to them via snail mail and asking them to send back either a cheque or a bank draft or, or something else. And that has been where the vast bulk of our, our fundraising has come from. And how um, kind of average, what would be the donation? Per the average donation for us, I mean, the average donation for Together Yes, I think on their on their, on their 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 fundraising drive is 39. Ours would be higher than that. Our average donation, I, I'm, 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 I'm guessing... Um, would be uh, closer to 80 or 90 euro. Um, they ran a very successful public funded campaign last week where they at least they hit their card targets faster than they said they were going to. And yes. you, you launched a, well in response to that. There was a we, 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 we sent out uh, an email fundraising campaign to our supporters. We have 19,000 people on our online mailing list and additional and more than that on our, on our snail mail list. Obviously our fundraising will take a little bit longer because of the, the methods that we're using. You can't just, you know, it's not an organised campaign like they had, although you can go onto our website and click donate. Um, How so, much have you raised so far out of that? So uh, I... I didn't check this morning, Hugh, but we are we're well over four hundred. I think we're at four fifty, four sixty, something like that. Um, and and we anticipate one of the things about fundraising is that there's a re- an action and a reaction. I don't think for a moment that Together for Yes would have raised the amount of money they had if there had not been a little bit of panic in the ranks there about the fact that their posters hadn't been up yet. Um, and also, you were stirring them up a bit as well. Yeah, didn't yeah. It? It, it it did. Also, by the way, there's a separate conversation. I don't want to get into a slanging match with 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 Together for Yes, but I do. Think I think there's a separate conversation to be had about whether whether what they did and the method they used for fundraising falls within the bounds of the electoral laws. And by the way, and just so we're clear on this, I'm not attacking them there. I think the electoral laws need to be updated, not necessarily together for yes. Um, you, did, you did go through the list of people who had donated and you targeted one individual in particular and you said that that person shouldn't have donated because they lived abroad. Turned out they were an Irish citizen. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that is true. Um, however, I, I, you know, together for yes found out that she was an Irish citizen at the exact same time as I did. They had no way of verifying that. And that's an issue. And I mean, when you have a, 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 a fundraising campaign that uses a third party platform and people can go on and they can donate. And lots of people donated, for example, in my name, which, you know, it's funny and sure fired up the base and all the rest of it. But if you donate in my name, the campaign doesn't know who's donating. Um, and if somebody, you know, and, and in terms of, and by the way, again, I want to emphasize, I'm talking about the electoral laws here and not, not what Together for Yes did. I actually think what they did is not uncommon. It happens in other d- democracies. It's in very way, in many ways, it's a good thing to see people engaged. Uh, I think, I think there's a whole conversation to be had around the powers of SIPO and the way campaigns are funded and so on and so forth. But as the law currently stands, I think that if you were to go through every donation they had with a fine-tooth comb, I think you'd find a significant number of them probably in breach of the law. That's not to say it was the majority or anything close to it. And for the record, I'm not attacking them. And I think both campaigns should be well-funded. Can you be confident, likewise, that you haven't, you know, if you've got an online drive to the same Hmm. difficulties could potentially arise for your campaign. Of course. Are you confident that you haven't received donations from, you know, outside the electoral law? We have. Um, and we have returned them, and we, we've re- we received a number of donations. I think the, the largest one that was was we had to return was about two hundred dollars. 
from somebody in Florida who in their enthusiasm decided they'd send us some money and we had to return that. Does, I mean, does this physically mean that you need to go through each, you know, Hugh Lennon has, devoid, yes. has, has sent us 150 yes, it, euro. It, it, who is he? I, is he an Irish citizen? It, is he resident yes, in Ireland? Yes, it oh. does. It does. And that's, and that's painstaking. And when you have, when you have 14,000, I don't want to say 14,000 donors because so many people donated several times to, to get FPS. When you have 14,000 individual transactions, that's a lot of work. To go through them individually and make sure they are all compliant with the with with the law, and that's a big challenge for anybody. And we have that challenge as well now because our donations have come in over a longer period. A lot of them are from people like who send in letters that are postmarked from you know, Boris and Austria or where we know that person is in Ireland. We know they're they're a long-standing donor to to pro-life causes, and so so it's a bit easier when you do a huge online fundraising drive like that. I'm not sure that the electoral acts, as they're currently constituted, are are up to date with the kind of the realities impact, of yeah, the realities of these the, Can I ask you, ask you one more thing? It's just I've been observing the campaign. I'm kind of intrigued by, I've followed you on Twitter for, for a fair few years, and mm-hmm. there's a kind of a, I suppose it's sort of a, a tone. There's things like you, you, were, you were claiming to have a mole inside the Yes Camp. There was a rather absurd thing about people putting up so-called Nazi banners as I repeal the eight thing. There was a there's an ongoing controversy, I think, about a repellent comment which was made about a, a deceased TD. There was an issue about somebody who claimed to be a nurse who spoke to Rally, who turned out wasn't a nurse. They, these all strike me as, uh, and please don't take this wrongly, as kind of trolly kind of behaviour. And I don't mean trolly in the way that people trolly the way that people sometimes mean it now, which is a kind of a, a monster in a digital cave scratching their underpants. It's the kind of the original, you know, version of troll, which is dangling something in front of the digital audience in order to grab their attention and make I, them agitated. You are many things. I'm not an angel. Um, I certainly never have been. Um, I, I, I think you're you're right. Look, I, I am I am from time to time. Um, I, I do I do. I do like to tweak the tail of my opponents. It's probably it's probably something I should do less of. Um, however, um, I do think, for does example, does it fit well with the job you're in now? Um, I, I think it does. I mean, one of the things about, about about this is that a lot of it is about there are people on our side who are on social media who see relentless, relentless um, vitriol driven at them, attacks, and all the rest. And I think a lot of a lot of what I do sometimes just boosts the morale of people on our own side. They like to see people fighting back. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I'm camera and all the rest of it. The last thing I want is this referendum campaign to be about me or any other individual. And the only reason I mentioned the repellent comment by the individual you mentioned earlier on was because a cabinet minister was sharing a stage with her at an event. And and when that repellent comment was made about somebody who was her constituency colleague and party colleague... Well, you'd been having to go with her for, for a long while before that too. Well, because I thought it was something that she should apologise for saying, given her prominence in the debate, and she has yet to apologise for saying it. And I, I, I don't think, by the way, had I said something about that, that I would have been allowed not to apologise for it. And I think I think it was wrong. That said, I do not, I, and I genuinely, I wish the woman well. I don't wish her any harm. Um, but I do think in the debate, when we're talking about um, having a civil and respectful debate, um, I think I think both sides need to be held to a standard there, as you've just rightly held me to a standard. I, I think um, Pat and Alva Smith and myself last week, we sort of came to the conclusion at the end of that podcast, uh, Sarah, that the the campaign had not been quite as vicious and divisive as a lot of people feared it would be in advance so far. What's your analysis well, of, so of far, that? So far, we still have five weeks to go and I'm sure as the countdown 
uh, kicks in, it may potentially become I, I, a little bit I, I, more. I want to say one thing in relation to that. I was on Limerick's Live 95 FM yesterday and I had a debate for a genuine head-to-head debate with Sinead Redmond from Together for Yes. And I hope Sinead feels the same way, but I, I thought it was it was remarkably civil and the issues were thrashed out. We've both got to put our positions across very fairly. I think it is a myth to say that this campaign cannot be civil. I think one of the things in Ireland that's an issue is that social media in general does not lend itself to people behaving well. I include myself in that. I include um, everyone who's involved in both sides of the campaign. It others people. We're sitting in this room now. I mean, I have criticised this newspaper in the past in fairly stark terms for its its coverage of issues. I hope it's possible to do that fairly. Um, but I think I think it is possible to have a civil campaign and it's possible to thrash out the issues um, and it's possible to do it without upsetting people. Um, but I think social media sometimes brings out the worst in people on both sides. Yeah, I'd fairly agree with that, to be fair. I mean, actually, if you look at it from a national perspective, you know, you don't really see Alva Smith or Laura O'Connor uh, going head to head or throwing... Um, with John and Neve Vrain and vice versa. So hopefully that can can be continued. I suppose um, social media is very toxic, but it is also an, ex- an echo chamber. Do you think it might turn people off or contribute to turning people off? I mean, one of the things which affects any electoral contest is turnout, and turnout is driven by engagement and enthusiasm and all those nebulous kinds of things. And if people just start feeling, this is just... Bleh. You yeah, know? I think actually one of the things is that there are obviously strong voices on both sides and there are people who have really strong views. There are a lot of people who, as John has said, perhaps would l- prefer terminations in exceptional circumstances that don't find themselves aligning with it either side. And they're not finding a home in either the Together for Yes or the Save the Eighth campaign. And so there's a whole fraction of people there in the middle who... I suppose, could potentially be won over by either side or could potentially opt out of the entire referendum campaign. I I suppose one thing, the things that I wanted to ask you about, John, was that that very issue is that I suppose there are people who would be opposed to abortion Mm -hmm. um, but believe that they should be some Mm -hmm. um, exceptions made and they don't find a home with Save the Eighth and they therefore are turned off by your campaign, like, is there any circumstance that the Save the Eighth campaign believes that there should be abortions provided for? We don't have a problem with any of the twenty-six abortions that happened in Ireland last year, or the or, or the, the law as it stands. Um, but you opposed so, no, the law I mean, when it was we, being introduced. We we opposed what we opposed was the suicidality provision. We, we 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 it sounded an awful lot to us like the mental health law in the UK under which ninety nine percent ninety eight percent of all uh, abortions take place in the UK. But so you we accept did now that it didn't that didn't that your concerns that that haven't borne fruit. It's early days yet, but at the moment at the moment we're 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 we're, we're okay um, with with the laws it stands. I mean uh, you know the law's been in, in practice for three years, so it's very hard to make a judgment on where it has or hasn't gone yet. I would say this. I mean we are a pro life organisation, Sarah. I mean we, we we can't make any bones about that we, we we're not going to compromise on on that principle which you know by no means a majority of the people share with us but a, 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 a significant number of people in this country take the view that an unborn life is a, is a life and, and shouldn't be determined and that's that's our view as an organization what we do do is recognize that not everyone agrees with us um and you are correct i think in your analysis that there are there are people out there in the middle i would say say 30 to 40 percent of the electorate who believe two things at once. They at once believe that abortion takes a human life and they also believe at the same time that it is sometimes in circumstances permissible or necessary. 
for whatever reason. We shall leave it there for the moment, but we will no doubt be returning to this subject on numerous occasions over the next few weeks. John and Sarah, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks. And that is it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider, and you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com, or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. Thank you.